You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Today on Max's Island, I've got Neil Harrison with me. G'day, Neil. How are you going? Yeah, I'm well, Tony. Yourself? Yeah, very well, thanks. Well, you've ventured out to Max's Island, and on Max's Island, we like to hear stories from people who have done something that's perhaps a little different, something that they didn't expect to do, perhaps something that was uh, against the grain or may have even been in their eyes, a service for somebody else. So, Neil, what's your story today? My story in a nutshell is I currently am a rescue skipper with the Marine Rescue Group in Perth. And it's a pretty simple story. I started out quite selfishly, really. And the local group down at the beach near me, um, I saw the guys out in the boat and I thought, oh, that'd be pretty cool to uh, play with somebody else's toys. So uh, so I went along to an information one night and um, yeah, signed up and joined as a wide-eyed crew member. And I've been with the group now for just coming up six years. And yeah, I've been working my way through the ranks and done all the training. And now, a, uh, of about six months ago, a, uh, a rescue skipper. Had you been a boatie before then? Yeah, I had been. I uh, had my own boat. Um, so didn't really take into account you know the safety aspect all that much i was reasonably safe but um, i only had a small boat so i didn't venture out too far and um you know after five years you learn how i suppose things can go wrong really quickly and um so it's definitely made me a safer boater to the point where yeah you, you just plan everything and expect things to go wrong so do you imagine that this is something that you thought you would be doing at this stage of your life? No. And the reason I say no is because I always thought volunteering, you know, why would you do something that you don't get paid to do? And, you know, in my early days I was trying to make a career and I suppose my work commitments kept me, you know, we say nine to five, but we uh, really at 7.30 till six most nights. And I thought, you know, really do I want to do something and commit to something that you don't get paid to do. And then I, I suppose my attitudes change these days, and certainly in the first couple of months with Sea Rescue, it was uh, it was giving back to the community. 
And the catalyst for me changing that idea was my first rescue with a um, uh, a guy who'd bought a new boat, had his wife and two young kids. They were on the way to rock nests and they'd broken down halfway and weren't in any danger at all. But when we picked the boat up and brought them back to Safe Harbour, back up at Hillary's, mum had tears in her eyes and she was she was scared. She had a look of horror on her face, although they were relatively safe. And from that time on, it was just, I think, my attitude changed from somebody that wanted to play with the with the group's toys, their high-speed boats and things like that, to more of, wow, people really get themselves into a, some situations that they're terrified they've been involved in. So, yeah, that sort of changed my attitude quite a bit to one of, you know, wanting to help people and, and render assistance when we can and also rely on people asking for advice and, and keeping people safe. So over the time, you must have seen some pretty hairy situations and probably some pretty sad ones. Yeah, probably the most prevalent one for me was uh, I was in probably six months as a, as a trainee crew member, and unfortunately we got called to a shark attack, which was just off Bindari, and our brief over the radio was that it was a missing diver. And when we turned up on on the scene, we were the first responders there. Unfortunately, there was a lady who'd been attacked by a shark and she was deceased and her dive partner was on the boat and he was just inconsolable and in massive shock and yeah it was just one of those things that you know I said to the guys afterwards I signed up for this to to tow in broken down boats nobody told me about shark attacks and things like that so yeah that was a, a, a jump in the deep end at that stage. And did you have to actively get involved in recovery of the, the individual? Yeah, when we uh, arrived on the scene, uh, she was on the back of the boat and, yeah, he was just inconsolable. Yeah, so we we took the boat back to Mindari. At that stage, there was a couple of ambulances, the police were there, and there was a massive crowd gathering around the boat ramp at that stage. Once we arrived, the police sort of took over from there, but we had to put the boat on the trailer and with her body still on the back. And then, you know, the police worked discreetly with sheets and things like that to, to cover it up. Unfortunately, her husband turned up at that stage and was told by somebody that, oh, somebody's been attacked by the shark. And then he realised it was his boat and his wife was on board. So, yeah, it was just a series of events that was, it was really surreal. And I remember saying to one of the other crew that was with me, he was the same. We'd been together six months. And I said to him, this is going to be big. This is going to be massive. And then, of course, all the news crews and everybody turned up and it, it just got bigger and bigger from there. So you'd only been working as a volunteer for six months when this happened. Did you have any support for yourself after the event? Uh, we did, actually. We we were back in the, in the harbour for a couple of hours. At that stage, our commander came down. He drove down personally to make sure we were all right. We were offered if we wanted to go home, but I think we all needed to be with each other. So there was four of us on the boat and I just couldn't have gone home really and just sat at home and, and thought about it. I felt that I would have been better off with the, the four guys I was with that had gone through the same scenario. And so we actually finished the job that day. So we knocked off later in the afternoon. And then that night I got a call from one of our skippers. We debriefed the next day. So our crew and then we were offered counselling through Department of Fire and Emergency Services. They organised for us to go and see some counselling. So I didn't feel like I wasn't supported. 
you know, there was plenty of support from, from you know, other volunteers and, of course, from the uh, Department of Fire and Emergency Services. So, and it all happened very quickly. You know, we were first on the, on the scene. We were only about two minutes away. And it was just, I think, our training sort of kicked in at that stage. We just got on with what we needed to do. You must have been pretty apprehensive about your next shift. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny, I did a job only last weekend where we had an EPIRB and we got called out. The water police tasked us to go a couple of miles out of Mindari and usually when an EPIRB goes off, it's uh, somebody's in trouble. So, you know, on the way, we probably had a good 20-minute ride by the time we got out there on the way you know, all sorts of thoughts go through your mind about what am I going to come across? You know, is anybody drowned in the water? You know, what's this thing going to be like? So you have a little bit of time to think about it. Thankfully, it was a uh, it was a non-event really. But yeah, it's um, uh, I think now after a couple of years and after the training and things that we've had, particularly all the first aid training and and that, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't be apprehensive and certainly be able to jump in. And um, an assist where I could assist. So, what other uh, interesting adventures have you had being uh, in the sea rescue? Oh, you name it. The, generally, the public get themselves into uh, into trouble, you know, without really sort of thinking about what they're doing. And we've found that there's a series of events that happen that that you know they just end up getting into trouble. So they can be you know, the standard sort of day would be broken down boats. You know, it's a dime a dozen people break down. We go and grab a tow and tow them in. Recently, our crews got involved in a drowning and had a loading season. So, you know, it just seems to be those types of things that, that happen. For me, there's been lots of different ones. Picking up a guy whose boat had broken down, who was, you know, just off a reef outside of Hillary's on his own at uh, very early in the morning. And, you know, we had to go in and do a sort of snatch and grab. We in about two metres of water with our own rescue boat over the top of a reef. And, grabbed him and pulled him in and uh, he was a new boaty, never been there before, had got up in the dark and decided that he was going to fish at a particular spot, not realising he was around reef. And he said to us afterwards, I've never been more terrified in my life. And uh, his eyes were like dinner plates, they were that big. So, yeah, you sort of see all sorts of different things. Quite often you come across people that just have no idea what they're doing, unfortunately, and they haven't been trained well enough to drive a boat. They just jump in, turn it on and off they go. Do you think that's a bit of a sign that the whilst now you have to get a skipper's ticket that there's still the the, the bar is relatively low and that um, people can invest you know twenty thirty thousand in a boat and yet invest only a few hours to get a ticket and then think they can do everything? Yeah, the un, the unfortunate thing with a skipper's ticket is you know you can go down to Hillary's or wherever and get trained and get your ticket in a five meter you know runabout little tiny boat. And then go down and jump behind the wheel of a forty or fifty foot million dollar boat. So you know, I think the skipper's ticket, yeah, you know, it doesn't really train you, and doesn't certainly doesn't train you for for uh, you know things that can occur or night navigation and things like that. So yeah, and, and that's where I got to. You know, I had a skipper's ticket, so I thought I was pretty cool and you know, no worries. But certainly the amount of training and and you know, the majority of our group are retired guys. A lot of those have got, you know, thousands of hours of sea experience. Some of them have been in the Navy. Um, and just learning from those old guys, you know, when they sort of have a cup of tea with them and they tell you stories and, you know, the different skills that you sort of pick up. So the training's been fantastic. And as, as I said, you know, 
now I'm a completely different person when it comes to sort of jumping on board a boat because I can, I've got a good understanding of what can go wrong with little or no warning. You've just mentioned that you are now a fully-fledged skipper. What sort of effort did that take for you to get to that level? Yeah, so you so you start off, everybody starts off exactly the same as a trainee. Well, it doesn't matter how, where you come from and what background you have and what qualifications. So the group likes to train everybody from a raw recruit. So start off as a, a, well, a, a trainee and then become a crew member and then a senior crew and then what they call VMR5 restricted skipper and then a full open skipper. So the training is quite intensive as you go through the different levels. So I've just completed my VMR5. So the courses on that were things like advanced navigation. So they gave us a chart of the Sundays, and we had to you know, make calculations of you know, going through the islands and depths and tides and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then, you know, same sort of thing at night time, making sure you don't run into things. So the training, as well as the practical component, the theory is quite intensive. So anything from navigation, obviously first aid and senior first aid, towing and rafting, how to you know, bring a boat into a pen when it's blowing 25 knots in, the, in a yacht club and not damage somebody's million-dollar boat. And then you know, things like vessel, vessel operations where you get a good understanding of you know, how bilge pump systems work, those types of things, the electronics on boats, so radar detection. Um, we chased an EPIRB the other day with our radar direction finder. So, you know, the electronics on, the, on board the boat is quite a big component of it. And generally what we do, you know, when we're on a day out on the boat, we let our trainees or our uh, crew drive the boat so that um, we talk about command and control. So, you know, the vessel's mine, so I'm in command of the vessel, even though I'm not in control of it. You know, I might have somebody else on the helm, but I've got to make sure that Whatever happens, it's my responsibility. Even if you know my my young crew member runs over the top of something, it's I've got to take the rap for it. So, yeah, that's you know the responsibility. I suppose is something that you don't get trained for. The first uh, shift where you're in control of a boat and you've got three or four people with you, you've got a half a million dollars worth of rescue boat, and you know my priority is to make sure those guys come home safe to their families and um, as well as the responsibility safety of the vessel and then the people that we're towing. So, you know, if we do a rescue where we tow somebody's boat back and something goes wrong, we've got to put in sort of all mitigation to make sure that we get people home safe. So, Neil, you've been doing this for six years. Did you ever imagine you would be so skilled, so committed and landed where you have done when you first volunteered? Definitely not. Definitely not. I thought that I would go out and just sort of be a crew member and help people. And it was, you know, in the six years ago, our group was a bunch of volunteers. In the last six years, that has changed with, uh, with the training that we get from fire and emergency services. So it's becoming more professional and more dedicated. So, yeah, when I sort of started, it was just a casual Saturday afternoon and, you know, pull into a port somewhere and grab a coffee and if somebody broke down, they broke down. But like last weekend, I was out, you know, I'm talking with the water police as an on-scene controller and I'm talking to a rescue helicopter and police boats and things like that. So, yeah, never in my wildest dreams did I sort of think that I would get to the stage where I'm getting, you know, involved in basically emergency first response. 
I always find it interesting that often people who volunteer, and you said that this was one of your, you know, first forays into into volunteering, how that can overtake your life and become such a passion for you. Do you think it's because, one, it's an, just an interesting thing to do, or do you think the community involvement and the ability to support a broader community is one of the driving things that keeps you doing it? Yeah, I, I, I just think it's um, once you get a taste of helping people, particularly when they're vulnerable and they're scared, that you want to do it again. And we do a lot of work with Bush Fire Brigade people, the SES, and the common theme is they're not there for the pat on the back. They're there to help people. They have a genuine interest in finding people. I mean, you know, the, the, the volunteer Bush Fire Brigade and the SES we get it pretty pretty easy in terms of marine rescue, but those guys out fighting fires, not being paid and, and working 12 or 14 or 18 hours a day when there's a bushfire happening, I mean, that's that's dedication to the cause. It's it's just helping people and doing what you can. I think, you know, to uh, to coin a phrase, the old, that's the Australian way where people sort of go out and help people. But, yeah, it's, there's a genuine interest in in doing it otherwise you know we wouldn't do we sort of joke about you know getting paid but you know everybody within our group we've got 130 volunteers they all do it to help people that's our core value is to save people's lives neil just before we wind up i think the listeners would be really interested and you have just touched on it a little bit but tell us about the boat you go out in every week tell us about the size what sort of equipment it's got in it what sort of power it's got and, um, you know, whether it's, you, you mentioned right at the start, it's uh, the toys that, you know, somebody else's toys you get to play with. Um, it'd be great yep. for our listeners to get a sense of exactly what sort of vehicle it is. Yeah. So we've actually got three boats, range in size. Our biggest one is uh, 42 foot. You could just picture perhaps a small version of a prey boat. Aluminium boat weighs about 12 and a half tonne, powered by two V8 diesels. and it's our sort of workhorse. The other two boats, the ones that I drive predominantly are uh, Naiads. So one's 11.8 metre, the other is 10 metre. So it's, a, it's an aluminium hull with uh, foam collars around the side. So it's a, a rib configuration. So the middle one, green two, is it's full size powered by two 450 V8 Yamahas. It'll do, depending on the sea, about 45 knots. The smaller one, the baby one, powered by two twin 325 Suzuki's, that'll do around about 40 knots, 41 knots, depending on the sea. Very quick boats, very responsive, soft collars, so they're quite a sociable boat. So if we need to come in close to somebody, you know, the boat can bump next to somebody else's boat, do any damage. Uh, Electronics-wise, we use uh, radar. We've got a forward-looking infrared cameras on board. Um, radio direction finders so we can get a direction from radio signal or an EPIRB signal, uh, all the first aid gear, spine boards, all those types of things. So, yeah, majority of the time I take the, the smaller one because it's uh, just a, a quick boat, very easy to handle, um, and she's just coming up to 18 months old. So fairly significant investment in boats um, and, of course, the maintenance bit. They're always out of the water, something's getting fixed on them. So how are they funded in terms of buying them and, and um, maintaining them? 
Yeah, so uh, good question. Originally, we had to fund everything ourselves, like all the VMR groups. So we relied on lots of sausage sizzles and donations for the public. And then when we f- were gazetted with DFIS about five years ago, DFIS will fund our operational costs and they will fund you know, up to a particular point. So we'll look at a vessel that we want to get, we'll get a price and DFIS might come along and say, oh, we'll pay 70% of that or 80% of that, or depending on what it is, might be a, a whole brand new boat. So that's taken the pressure off the group considerably as the guys down in Albany had a new boat and they had to sell a lot of sausages and mallee roots to, to get the money to put together to buy it. So <laughs> most of the funding comes from the emergency services levy, people pay, but you know, compared to the fireys and SES, yeah, you know, our funding is probably not as big, but um, it certainly helps. We burn around about three and a half thousand dollars worth of fuel a month just doing routine stuff. So, you know, obviously more in summer and less in winter. So it's an expensive. I went out the other day and I think we chewed through about three hundred and fifty or four hundred dollars of fuel in a day. So um, we did fifty odd nautical mile up and down the coast. So it's not a cheap exercise, but again. You just can't put a price on keeping people safe. Saving lives is uh, is a priceless exercise, and um, I'm sure all our listeners would thank you and your fellow volunteers uh, for the work that you do and, and making it safe for us to go out on the water. Neil, just before we finish, and it's been just fascinating talking to you because I think we all know that your type of volunteering exists, and and you know often we see the boats going out, but we don't really appreciate the effort and the sacrifice that the volunteers put in to do that. And as you say, it's done for all the right reasons because you get committed to helping others and providing a community service, which we're all keen to do in whatever way that's uh, possible for us. But just in finishing, have you got any advice to anybody who thinks that this might be something for them to volunteer? We don't necessarily want people that want to come on and be a volunteer and be a skipper. We have people that, as I said, are retired, and they're just happy to spend a day out on the boat and throw a few ropes and and help where they can. We also have, we provide a 24-hour radio coverage for people to log on and log off. Um, And we've got, you know, some some volunteer members there that all they do is radio during the week. So a few retired people. So... Yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, out in the boats. It can be radio. Most of our volunteers do both. Yeah, I, I would encourage people to try it and and just see how you go. So they can go to uh, to our website at Whitford Sea Rescue and there's a an expression of interest they can fill in and come along to an information night and you know, we tell them the nuts and bolts of what happens and then out of that, you know, majority of people go, yeah, I'll, I'll keen to do it the commitment is is something that is difficult so you know we're committed to one weekend a month a bit like the army reserves really and uh and then you know so you do one weekend on the boats and then another half a day on a weekend with radio shifts so you know sometimes people join and they go yeah this is great but then the commitment certainly you know our partners would uh um would agree, you know, there's a lot of impact on your family life, particularly around public holidays and things like that. And then usually when you sit down for dinner and just about have dinner, the phone rings and you're out till all hours of the day or night when something happens. So, But it's worthwhile. It's certainly rewarding. And as I said at the start, it's, you know, I certainly didn't see myself getting you know, this far up the tree and I suppose this passionate about what we do. 
Neil, thanks very much for joining us on Max's Island. Obviously, Max's Island's uh, surrounded by water, so let's hope one day we don't need your services around the island. But anyway, thanks for joining us and telling us this fascinating story about your journey being a volunteer and now being a skipper with the uh, Sea Rescue. Thanks for being on the island. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks. sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky, completely alone, no emails or phone and nothing.